You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Amen. Okay. Well, good to see you guys. Uh, A few years ago, a movie came out uh, that uh, some of you might be familiar with, a character by the name of Walter Keene. It was based on a true story. If you're a baby boomer in the room, you might be familiar with Walter Keene. Walter Keene in the 60s was one of the most commercially successful artists of that time period. In fact, uh, Life Magazine in 1965 dubbed his paintings uh, the most popular art now being produced in the free world. Okay, so what was his art? What was he painting? Well, he was known for painting beauties like these. Now, whether or not uh, you're gonna have nightmares for the rest of your life because you just looked at this uh, image uh, is not the point. That that will happen, but that's not the point. Uh, The point is that uh, these football-eyed, weirdo-looking kids holding emaciated animals was a really big deal in the 1960s. Okay, that was a huge thing. It was happening. And uh, there was only one problem with that artwork, of course, besides it being really creepy. The the problem was uh, Keene, Walter Keene, didn't didn't paint a one of them. Uh, He didn't paint at all. He didn't know how to paint, actually. Uh, Every one of these paintings that were produced in the 1960s were done by his wife, Margaret Keene. Uh, Now, Margaret went public with this information in uh, 1970. And as you can imagine, just everything kind of went crazy, right? Uh, Walter went to the press uh, and and had some scathing articles written about Margaret. And he just contended the whole time that he was, in fact, the painter of these things. So when the 1980s rolled around, Margaret took Keene to court. Margaret took her husband to court. And the judge in this case was a super interesting guy artsy guy, I guess, he decided that in order to determine uh, who was the person who really was painting these, they were going to have like an in-courtroom paint-off. Like this really happened. I love this guy. Uh, They were going to set up two easels and they were going to have them both show up and paint a painting. And whoever's painting was the creepiest, I guess, won, right? Uh, And wouldn't you know, on the day of the paint-off, just so happened that Walter called in with a sore shoulder and couldn't paint. And that's just the way it goes, man. You just want to be able to paint and you just, gosh, God's sovereign, but you know, it's crazy. But Margaret came, she showed up and in 53 minutes, she produced one of these. And uh, the jury awarded her $4 million in damages because of that, because of her husband's plagiarism. And now, now that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're talking about plagiarism. Now, what is plagiarism? Well, plagiarism uh, in its simplest form is just, it's the act of taking another's work and passing it off as your own. That's what it is. It's, it's robbing someone of the credit they rightly deserve and then ascribing that credit to yourself instead. And if we're honest this morning, you know, this really isn't a... Um, a painter's problem, you know? It's not just an author's problem or a creative's problem or a publishing problem. This is, in a very real sense, a a people problem. It is a a human problem. 
And in fact, it might be fair to say that in some ways, this is the human problem. The, the, the temptation to sort of sign our names at the bottom of a work that isn't ours. And this morning, we're talking about that work being the work of God, signing our name across that work, which is not ours. And so to do that this morning, we're gonna be in the book of Daniel. And we're doing that because in this story that we're gonna be looking at, we're gonna to get to the heart of a question that I think the Bible is deeply, deeply concerned about. Uh, it's, it's this question, and, and you're gonna see this question sort of show up in different forms and ways throughout the whole meta-narrative of scripture. And the question is really this, who gets the credit? That's the question, who, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for all the good that you've seen done in your life? Who gets the credit for, for, for the good things that have been produced in you and, and through you and, and for others? Like who, who gets the credit for the blessing that you've seen happen around you? Who gets the credit for the, the good that's waiting for you on the other side of eternity? Who gets the credit for that? That's the question the Bible is deeply concerned about. And how you answer that question is really the difference between seeing and blindness. It's the difference between pride and humility, between gratitude and self-glory. And what I'm hoping the Spirit does for us this morning is expose those places in us where we're sort of just signing our name across the work of God, calling it our own, plagiarizing the maker. That's what I'm hoping the Spirit's doing in us this morning. And so we're gonna be trying to draw that out in the book of Daniel chapter four. And we're gonna be looking at the life of a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. And we're gonna watch a man who has spent his whole life really taking credit for someone else's work. And we're gonna watch what it did to him. We're gonna watch where it brought him to. And we're gonna, we're gonna watch what it took for him to finally get out of that and rightly ascribe the credit to where it's due. Okay, so here, here we go. We're in Daniel 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under your seat. Get it out. Turn to it with me. Uh, we're going to be in the whole, the whole of Daniel 4. It's a long one, so we'll read some. I'll summarize some, and, and off we go. Sound good? Sound good? There we are. Okay, uh, here we go. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and it reads, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so, so our story actually uh, begins uh, with the author being Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one telling this tale to us. And, and it begins, interestingly, at the end. Some events have transpired for him, and he's sort of retelling all the things that have happened to him. Very Christopher Nolan, very memento, very, if that's 
too hip for you, a very Forrest Gump. This is a Forrest Gump intro to this moment in our past, right? The, 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 the bench is there and the, and the, the feathers kind of coming down and there's the little Nebby sitting there and he's going to tell us a story about his tale, all the things that have happened to him. That's how this story opens with him giving us the events that have transpired. And it's interesting, notice here that he's going to begin the letter by doing something very interesting. He's going to begin his letter by praising God. Look at verse two and three. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So there he tells us what we're in for in the story, right? What he's up to is wanting to communicate a story about something marvelous that God did on his behalf. That's what he's doing. And whatever it was is so marvelous that this guy just breaks out into song. And a lot of your Bibles, you're going to see this little moment, these verses kind of sectioned off by themselves because it's a song. It's a poem. He's doing something unique here. He's singing a song. He's saying, how great are his signs. How, how mighty are his wonders. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar literally just breaks out into the chorus of how great is our God right here at the beginning. See, you thought it was a, a Chris Tomlin song, but actually it was a, a pagan uh, Babylonian king that wrote it. Speaking of plagiarism. But here it is. That's what it says. And, and, and now on to his story. So he, he, he sets up that God has done something marvelous. And now we're in verse four and he says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So get, kind of get that picture in your head. There he is, uh, just chilling out in his house. And of course, by house, I mean this picture. Uh, this little number is uh, what historians uh, refer to as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. Yeah, which by the way, if you happen to live in one of the seven wonders of the world, can we just all admit you're doing okay? You're doing good, things are okay for you if this is where you kick it at night. So seven wonders of the world, that's where, that's where this scene is taking place. So there he is at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. And then verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he's laying there in the lap of luxury and he has a dream and it terrifies him. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? He calls in all of his ma uh, magicians and his astrologers to, to get an interpretation of the dream. He's gonna lay it out for them and they don't have a clue what it is. And so eventually he's gonna invite in a captive of his named Daniel, who hopefully is gonna provide an interpretation for him. And so what he's about to do in this next passage is sort of lay out what the dream is for these group of people. And I'm just gonna summarize what the dream is and the interpretation is because it's a, it's a really big passage here. And then we'll get into, what it means. So essentially, here's what happened. Here's what he dreamed. And this is what he's telling the crew in front of him. He dreamed that he saw a tree kind of in the center of the earth. And this tree grew 
and it grew and it grew and it grew so big that it reached the top of it, reached all the way up to the heavens or what we might think of as space, outer space and its branches extended over the whole of the earth and its foliage and its leaves grew and covered the earth and provided shade for the whole earth and it grew fruit on its branches and that fruit fed all of the creatures of the earth. It was a big, majestic, beautiful tree that he sees in this dream. And then all of a sudden, down from heaven, right in that moment, there comes an angelic being. In the text, it says it's a watcher or a holy one. It comes out down from the sky and it makes a proclamation over this tree that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing in the dream. And the proclamation is this, chop down the tree. Chop down the tree and chop it to its stump and cut off its branches and strip its leaves and scatter its fruit and bind it with bronze and cover him, it says, with dew and then let him lose the mind of a man and be given a beast's mind and let this happen, he says, for seven periods of time. And then the angel, interestingly, gives Nebuchadnezzar a reason for why this thing is happening to this tree. Verse 17, he says this, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So that's the dream. That's the dream, and Daniel is invited into this moment to give an interpretation of the dream to the king. And by God's grace, he's able to do that. And what he tells Nebuchadnezzar after this long pause is essentially this. You're the tree. You are the tree, Nebuchadnezzar. Your kingdom is massive and big and flourishing and expansive and it's covering the earth. And you got to remember this time, I mean, we're talking about the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, and it doesn't really get any bigger than Babylon, right? Babylon was the name of the empire itself, and it was also the name of the capital city within the empire. And in the sixth century BC, this is really Babylon at its peak, uh, so like to give you some perspective, within the city walls of the city of Babylon, uh, there were over 200,000 people, which, which doesn't maybe sound like a lot if you live in DFW, but, but this would have been at that time the largest city on the face of the earth and the largest city in, ever in recorded history. This is a massive place, the city of Babylon. I mean, Babylon's military might. Right? I mean, these, these guys struck fear in the heart of everybody. Remember, these were the people that, that God used to exile the nation of Israel, God's own people, like the, you know, the Babylonian captivity. That's these guys. Like the military might was massive. The expansiveness of the kingdom was massive. And if you want to talk about important people on earth, it doesn't really get more important than King Nebuchadnezzar. So right at the top of the food chain was this nation and this man, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the nation of Babylon. You know, I, I find it really interesting as, as I was reading this text and seeing the dream and seeing what the uh, angel, uh, how the angel frames things for him. It was interesting to me that, that 
There's really no indictment here on the part of the angel or as we'll see in the part of Daniel of the kingdom itself. Like there was no beef that, that uh, the angel has here with the size or the expansiveness or the reach of this thing or the might of King Nebuchadnezzar. That's not what's indicted here. In fact, look at what Daniel says about the dream in verse 25. Here's what he says. You shall be driven from among men. So he's telling Nebuchadnezzar the consequences. You shall be driven among men and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So the angel and Daniel both have a warning here, right? We hear the warning. They're saying that there is danger in the greatness of this kingdom. But listen, the danger isn't the kingdom. The danger is thinking that it's your kingdom. Do you see that? The danger isn't the kingdom. It isn't that he's got this massive thing going. The danger, Nebuchadnezzar, is that you think it's yours. Welcome to the threat for every one of us in this room. Just whose kingdom do you think this is? That's what it's asking. Whose, whose kingdom do you think this is? Or, or let me say it another way. Whose name is signed at the bottom of your life's painting? Whose name's there? Is it yours? Or is it his? That's the issue in this text. If you're, if you're looking for a, a really simple um, kind of encompassing way to sort of summarize some of the main themes in Christianity, like if we could boil it down uh, to, you know, a central idea, what would it be? It, would, it might be something like this. Christianity is about undeserving people getting massive blessings from a generous God. That's the, that's the simplest way I could put it. Christianity fundamentally is about totally undeserving people receiving and getting massive, earth-shaking blessings from a generous God. And again, this is, this is a theme that you're gonna see traced throughout the whole of your Bible, right? This isn't just like a Nebuchadnezzar Daniel 4 moment. This isn't just like an Old Testament thing. This is like a post-Jesus, post-resurrection, New Testament idea. This is the thrust of scripture. I mean, look at, look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul, Paul's writing a, a letter to encourage the church at Corinth. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has always and will always be in the habit of blessing the lowest ones. Do you see that? That's what he's in the business of doing. Blessing the lowly, the ones of us who can finally get and admit, gosh, we're just not that spectacular, right? Like, I'm not bringing much to the table. Like a heart posture that says, when I think about what God does owe me, hell actually makes a lot of sense. The person with that heart posture, God is so ready to bless. He's so ready to give good gifts to the lowest. Do you see that? And for those of us in Christ, the blessings don't get any bigger. They don't get any bigger than eternal life. Freedom from sin, the lifting of the wrath of God from you, a glorified body in a new heavens and a new earth with the saints enjoying Jesus forever. The promise that even the worst thing that will happen to you in this life is being turned for your good and his glory and your joy in him for all eternity. These promises blow Nebuchadnezzar's gifts out of the water. Do you see that? It's what we have is better than what he had. Hands down and none of it, not a single drop of these things is our doing. It's all a gift. Christianity is about undeserving people receiving gifts from a generous God. And I just want to ask, is that how you see things? Like, is, is that how the economy of your Christian walk works? I uh, had the awesome privilege of making a new friend recently and uh, getting to sit down with him uh, maybe a, a month or so ago at a coffee shop and just getting to hear his story. Uh, he recently just came to know Jesus and uh, I was sitting with him in the middle of that process and he is uh, a now former Mormon and I was getting to hear a story, like what was the appeal, what was the draw for you of coming to Mormonism? And it was so fascinating to listen to him talk about it because he said one of the big appeals to him of Mormonism was this, it was the fact that he could contribute something to his salvation. Like that was really a pleasant thought for him. And in fact, he looked me in the eyes at one point and he just said this. He said, at least Mormonism gave me something to do, right? That's honest, isn't it? Which is another way of saying, I really just want to sign my name at the bottom of the painting. You see that? And maybe that's your struggle too. 
Like maybe for you, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar, like totally like on the tip of your tongue boastful, but maybe for you, it's, it's just the longing to want to have some stake in your salvation, like to have a hand in the blessings that you're getting, to be able to say at the end of the day, look, you can measure what I've accomplished. It has a height and a width to it. And look what I did, God. That thought is like poison for us. But it's so attractive, isn't it? Like just wanting to have a hand in the deal, man. This is what we struggle with. And maybe that's you. You just need to hear this. Christians don't hustle, y'all. Christians receive. We don't make things happen for ourselves. Things happen for us. We don't clear our debts. Our debts get cleared as we stare in amazement at a God who would condescend to rescue a bunch of rabble sinners like us. That's what Christianity feels like. Staring at a God who would do something like that for a knucklehead like me. That's what it should feel like for us. And when we get this, like when we simply become open-handed receivers of the good that God has for us, can I tell you what it does? It makes God look great. It makes him look great. And so you can understand why God might care so much about his signature being the only one on the bottom of your life. And sadly, Nebuchadnezzar misses it. He misses it. Take a look at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered, or some translations would say he reflected and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? There it was. One year after he saw the vision, after he heard the warning, the king of Babylon picks up his pen and signs his name across the work of God. And immediately, the text says that a voice comes out of heaven and announces, pronounces the judgment on him. And in literally seconds, King Nebuchadnezzar loses his Sovereignty loses his kingdom, loses his mind, and loses it for seven long years. And I want us to notice something here because I think there, in this moment, there's a principle implied in the text for us to hold on to. And I don't want us to miss this. Don't let this be lost on you, church, that there was a really significant time gap between the truth that he heard and his eventual collapse back into arrogance, right? It, you saw what the text said, right? It said a year later, 12 months later, a calendar year went by before this moment happened of his boastfulness and his collapse back into arrogance. 
And I, I think that there's something here for us. I think there's a principle here for us. And I think it's this. Listen, the further we get away from the truth, the more we begin to rewrite it. Let me say that again. The further you get away from the truth, the more you begin to rewrite it. This is just life, right? This is not um, an unfamiliar phenomenon, right? This happens all the time, all the time. You just put a little distance between any guy in this room and the last time he caught a fish and you just watch what happens, right? Yeah, I was uh, off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa with my crew. When I travel internationally, I fish with my crew. And uh, we were out there noodling, bare-armed, you know how it is, for hammerheads. And uh, I tell you what, I caught six of them, brought them in the boat with me. They were weighing it down. I got to admit, I was a little scared. Each one was 10 feet if it was an inch. You know, I don't want to brag. Soli Deo Gloria, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Wife walks in, you know, as he's telling the story. Honey, um, the koi pond out front of the church, uh, it doesn't have hammerheads, it has koi. So you cut a koi fish. More tea? Uh, that's what we do, right? The further we get away from the truth, the more we begin to reinterpret it, reimagine it, re write it. It's what we do. This is why folks who are familiar with like the criminal justice system will tell us not to hang our hat on eyewitness accounts, right? Because they're horribly unreliable. We're finding out people forget easily. The further we get away from the truth, the more we begin to rewrite it. And I'll tell you some of the saddest examples of this over the years of you know, me just being in the throes of ministry with different guys, just sitting across the table from young guy after young guy who is just doubting away everything. And I'm listening to him doubt away the existence of God and truth itself, anything reliable to plant his feet on. And, and I ask them, as I do every time at the end of them sharing, I'll ask the same question, brother, how's your time in the word been? And do you know what 100% of these guys have in common? None of them are reading their Bible. And I find it fascinating and heartbreaking that they have distanced themselves from the truth source and are now complaining that they can't find truth. Can I just say this lovingly to us? There is very little hope for you to be happy in Jesus if you refuse to be with Jesus. There's very little hope there. And some of you here this morning are just there and you're struggling right now. And you're here this morning because that's what you've always done or it's, it's the good Christian thing to do. But if you're honest, you have not gone eyeball to eyeball with God in a very long time and your joy is just expired. Can 
I tell you, I'm praying for you. I've been praying for you. That today would be the day when you decide to close the gap of distance between yourself and the truth of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. That that gap this morning, you would say, I'm closing it. I want to get to know my God. I want that for you. And so we're here at a very dark place in the story, aren't we? And in, in many ways, this should really be where the story ends. The, the foolish, prideful guy gets what's coming to him. There should be a period at the end of this chapter, but our God is kind and he's gracious and he's compassionate. He has mercy on people. And so this is not the end of Daniel 4. It goes further than that. There is a verse 34 and it says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that is the sound of a man who knows his place in the story, isn't it? That's the sound of a man who knows whose signature's there. And I come to this part of the story, and I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm just left going, what happened? Like, what, what happened? How, how did you go from like crazy Howard Hughes fingernails, bird hair guy to, to this? Like how did, how did that transition happen? The text only gives us six words. It gives us six words. I lifted my eyes to heaven. I want you to notice something with me because I think this is fascinating. Notice this. When Nebuchadnezzar's fall happened, right? When that boastful moment happened, wh where was he? Well, he was on the roof of his palace, wasn't he? Looking down over all the land. And then when his reason returned to him, where was he? Well, he was as low as you could get. He was so low, he was eating grass with the cattle. He was so low that the only direction he could look was up. Do you see that? Yes. There's something to this. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis explains uh, this sort of phenomenon. In God, Lewis says, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Forgetting our place in the story is like constantly looking down over our kingdom and forgetting to turn our gaze heavenward. That's what it's like. So what does this mean for us? What does this text mean for us? How do we fight against forgetting whose name is on the painting? How do we fight for that? Well, the text says it right here, doesn't it? We get low and we look up. We get low and we look up toward him. Okay, Jimmy, that's, that's nice and it's flowery, but how does that play into my life practically? Like, what do I do? Well, I think there's a, a couple ways to apply this. And uh, before I say, I, I should say, I really hesitated to put these in uh, this sermon, uh, these two ways, because I think, I just think for many of us in this room, especially those of us who are just really familiar with just like the church thing and hearing sermons and things like that, I just think it's gonna sound really tired and played out to a lot of us in here. I've actually started calling these two things the dead horses because I just beat the junk out of these mugs all the time. Like I, I just, but, but I do that because in 17 years of walking with Jesus, I just haven't found anything more helpful than these two things to hold on to, to give me freedom. I haven't found anything better. So I'm going to give them to you now. And it, it's this one we fix our eyes on the truth. And two, we do that alongside truth lovers. That's it. We fix our eyes on the truth of God and we fix our eyes on the truth of God right next to and in community with lovers of that same truth. We fix our eyes on the truth. It, this, if, if you're in the scriptures at all, you're, you're just gonna see this everywhere. This is the habit of every saint, every godly person in your Bible. This was definitely the habit of King David. We actually heard about it last week when Rodney was preaching out of uh, Psalm 16. One of my favorite verses in the scripture is uh, 16.8 of the Psalms. And, and David says this, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Listen to that. I have set the Lord continually before me. Do you hear the, the deliberateness about that? Like he's saying, I could set stuff before me. I could set whatever I want before me. And what I am choosing to set before me is Yahweh. And how often am I doing that? Continually. I have set the Lord continually before me. I am putting the news about the person and the work of the Lord in front of my face constantly. This is what we do as Christians, guys. This is normative Christianity. Pursuing God, listen, I hope this frees somebody in here. Pursuing God is not calculus. 
It, it's like getting to know any other person. How do you get to know someone? You spend time with them. And he has given us such a wonderful means to get to know him. He has given us his precious word, the scriptures. And so I got to ask you, are you sitting with it? Are you getting to know God in his word? Because I got to tell you, I talk to so many people who I'm convinced have a good, strong walk with God. But when I press them on this, they're not in the word. How can you know and treasure God if you're not knowing about him? The, the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. You have to press into God. Is it a habit for you? I'll tell you, when I, when I came to know Jesus at about 15, 16 years old, my mentor at the time, he said, I won't mentor you unless you're sitting with God daily. And, and I really like this guy, so I decided to sit with God daily in his word. And I started doing that, and I gotta tell you, everything just started to change for me. It, not at first, right? And you know this feeling, you sit with, with the scriptures, and you're like, I don't really get it. But, but I'll tell you what started happening, I just started wrestling with the text. I started to, to pin guys like the Apostle Paul to the ground and tell them to help me make this make sense, right? And, and, and the more I did that, the more I fought with the text, and the more I asked the Holy Spirit to illuminate what I was seeing, something happened. Jesus just started to jump out of the pages at me. His promises began to sweeten. His nature began to, to grow and expand to become more lovely. And it, it became a treasure to sit with God. I wonder if you've pushed through the duty part of it into the delighting, because I promise you, church, beloved, it can be a delight, and it is, and he's waiting for you there. Fix your eyes on the truth. And then we do that next to truth lovers. We do that next to the saints. You know what I think is, is painfully, awkwardly absent from the story when I read it. Other people, b besides like weirdo astrologers and magicians and, and like besides like a, a captive slave, like, like Daniel who's forced to be there, like where are the people in this king's life that can shoot him straight and help him see truth and help him rightly estimate himself. I, I get it. He's a pagan king, most you know, important guy in, in the world at that time. He would have just smoked anybody who you know, disagreed with him. But that's not our problem, right? That's, that's not our situation, right? And so I've got to ask the question, are the people there for you, people who love God, who take his word seriously, who love you and, and, and aren't just willing to flatter you or, or, or cater to you, but, but, but they will shoot you straight in love. Are you surrounding yourself with people like that? The way we do that at Stonegate, we do that mostly through home groups. Are you in a home group? Are you leaning into that? Because I gotta tell you, that is God's means for grace in your life to get to know him. I just can't help but think about when I'm, th when I'm thinking about being in community, that moment in, in uh, Hebrews 3.13, right? Where uh, the writer's talking, he's saying, 
uh, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Listen, the text is saying, you need to hear God's truth and you need to hear God's truth out of the mouths of people. You, you, you don't just need scripture. You need the saints to tell you the same news. They have eyes on your life that you don't have on your life. And if you don't have that, the text is really clear. Sin will harden you. It'll cripple you. It will kill you guys. I don't want that for us. And so, and so that's what God offers us community of truth lovers to walk alongside. We're not perfect. Nobody's perfect here, but we're doing it together because that's God's means of grace for us. So we fix our eyes on the truth and we do that in community with truth lovers. And I know, I get it. You've heard this before, right? This is really tired. Jimmy just told me to read my Bible. Jimmy told me to go to church, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't need something new or sexy to get on to know our God. We just need to be faithful with the means of grace he's already given us. And he's given us a wonderful means of grace, hasn't he? He has equipped us so we can know him. He has done that. You know what happens when we finally get our eyes off our own little kingdom and, and look up to God? What happens when we lean into these means of grace and, and spend time with him in his word, do that alongside truth, alongside truth lovers? You know what happens to us as Christians as we do that? Gratitude happens and joy happens. That's what happens. I mean, my favorite part of this whole long chapter in Daniel my favorite part far and away is not the moment where he regains his mind or his reason. It's not that. My favorite part is at the very beginning where we read at the beginning. I love that he starts this letter with praising God in light of everything we just read. I mean, look at verse two again. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. What did God do for him? He turned him into a chicken. That's what he did. He made him go crazy and walk around outside for seven years, just probably buck naked, just walking around, just eating grass. That's what God did for Nebuchadnezzar. What are you talking about? All the great things God's done for me. He made you a chicken, bro. And I don't know why you're celebrating that, but, but he knows why. Because humility allows us to be grateful for all the good things that God does for us. Or let me say it differently. A person who gets this delights in being humbled by God because he sees it as a grace and a gift. It makes me think about um, this moment. It was, it was probably 12 years ago now. I was 20 years old. And I was invited to... Um, 
speak and perform at uh, a church in Florida for their Celebrate Recovery ministry. Has anybody heard about Celebrate Recovery in here? Anybody know what that is? Okay, awesome. Uh, so Celebrate Recovery, for those you who don't know, it's, it's, it's this wonderful ministry that sort of walks alongside uh, addicts and people struggling with sort of assorted troubles and, and it just helps them get free and see Jesus better, that, that whole thing. And so I'm invited there. They, 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 you know, they, they booked me to do this because you know, they thought, well, 20-year-old Jimmy has a ton of wisdom and insight for all of these people. And so I said, yes, let's do it. Um, so I, I show up to this church in Florida and, I, and I'll, I totally remember this moment, you know, I'm walking up to the doors and this is, by the way, this is like the, this is the founding church for Celebrate Recovery. So this is like a big deal. It's a big moment. I can't believe I'm here and I'm walking in and I just see right before I go in like this row of Harley Davidsons like out front. And I'm like, I don't know what's about to happen. And, and I walk inside and I'm just like surrounded by like, like Philistine, like just gigantic, what is, monstrous people, just leather clad and spider tattoos and just big old beers. You should have seen the men, y'all. The men, it was crazy. Like, it was just a wild scene and I'm standing there, just a little 20-year-old Jimmy in the pew like this. I'm like, I, just, I grew up in the suburbs. And I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what was gonna happen. And then the worship started. And the worship leader started singing a praise to God and everything changed. And the room melted. And these tough looking, hard nosed looking folks began crying out to God and pleading with him and, and, and thanking him for the mercy that he's extended to him. And it's just, it was that posture of just like, what? Why, why me, God? I mean, I am such a sinner and you have lavishly poured out your grace on me and they were crying. And I started crying. I was just, I was so moved and I just felt like this, the spirit was saying, this, this is what it looks like to know me. This is what it looks like to know who is the only sovereign, whose name is on the painting. This is what it feels like to just be a receiver of grace and not a contributor to my salvation. This is what it feels like. And this is what God is offering us this morning. Would you come and just take him because he's extending himself to you this morning. Let's lay down our desire to plagiarize our lives and, and be willing to say, God, every good and perfect gift is from you coming down from the Father of lights. And the greatest gift is your son and you've given it to me. I'm so thankful, God. That's the heart posture that he's after in you this morning. And he will have it. Ask him for it. If that's not you, ask him for it this morning and he'll give it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we, um, we need you. And we need, God, the grace that your spirit gives to help see things rightly, to help know where our place is in this story. Give us the grace to remember 
who's in charge, whose salvation this is. It's yours, it's not ours. Would you help us, God? Ask him for help this morning. Ask him for help. If your heart's hard, ask him to soften it. If you've been inflated with, with pride and he's given you eyes to see that this morning, repent and run to the cross where there is no pride, just grace. God, we trust that you're gonna do all these things in Jesus' strong name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.